Well, I want to say a little bit uh, in the sermon today about why we are out here on the lawn. You thought we were just doing this for fun, right? Yeah. Well, it is fun. I hope you're having fun. I hope you continue to have fun today. But uh, that's not the only reason that we're out here on the lawn today. Who knows what our church's mission statement is? Can you call it out? Huh? <laughs> I, yeah, I hear a few of you. A few of you know it. Knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. That's our mission statement. That's what we're all about. Knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. That's why we worship every Sunday. It's why we have small group Bible studies throughout the week. It's the purpose of our children's activities and our youth ministry. It's the inspiration behind our pastoral care team. It's the motivation behind our missions work. Tuesday evening, Stepping Forward, our Faith Food Pantry, all of the other mission work we do, all of it is about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. That's the reason we're out here on the lawn today, and it's the reason why we're filling the truck this weekend, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. When we read through the Bible, which is the foundation for our faith, the Bible is God's way of communicating to us who he is and what he wants for us, as individuals, as a community, as a church, and for our world. When we read the Bible, we find that this is really what the gospel is all about, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And that's what I want to look at this morning from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. The passage that we're focusing on today is about the disciples coming to follow Jesus. And John tells the story a little bit differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Those other gospels give the version that you're probably used to hearing of the disciples being out on a boat while they're fishing and Jesus walks by and he tells them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they drop everything and they follow him. Now in those accounts, it sounds as though that they had no idea who Jesus was before that. That he was just this stranger who showed up out of nowhere and told them to come follow and they did, which seems kind of strange. I mean, we teach our children not to talk to strangers, much less drop everything to follow them not knowing who they are or where they're going. Why would they do that? Do we really want to celebrate that kind of reckless behavior? Well, maybe John helps to fill in some of those questions. John fills in some holes helping to make sense of why the disciples would drop everything to follow Jesus. Listen to these words from John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he declared. Now before we get into what he declared, we need to know who he is. The person in this verse who saw Jesus approaching and declared something about him is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. Not because he thought Jesus needed to be baptized. Remember, John the Baptist tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized, but Jesus insisted. And when John submitted, after he baptized Jesus, he saw, he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. To John, it, it looked like a dove, but he knew it was the Spirit of God. And John heard a voice from heaven proclaim, This is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. So John the Baptist knew Jesus. He knew who Jesus was because God had revealed it to him. He had seen the Spirit. He had heard the voice. Nobody else knew who Jesus was at that point, but they knew John the Baptist. John had been doing his thing for some time. He had been 
preaching, he had been baptizing, he had been gathering large crowds around him, not because he wanted a following for himself, but when you do things like wear camel's hair and eat locusts and <laughs> preach against the king and dunk people underwater, well, a crowd is going to gather. People knew that John the Baptist was a prophet. They believed that he had a direct line to God. So when John the Baptist saw someone approaching and declared something about that man, people were inclined to listen. And here is what John the Baptist said. He saw Jesus coming toward him and he declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It turns out that the disciples didn't begin following Jesus blindly. Before Jesus ever called any of them to come follow me, first they heard John the Baptist, a man they knew, a man they trusted, a man whose word they believed in. They heard John the Baptist declare about Jesus, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now what did that mean to them? It could have meant a number of things. Bible scholars have debated what the correct interpretation of that phrase is. But almost everything in the Gospel of John has multiple layers of meaning. And looking at each layer of meaning helps when it comes to knowing Jesus better, understanding more fully who Jesus is. The Lamb of God. Lamb of God. In, in first century Judaism, at the time that John the Baptist spoke those words, Lamb of God was an expression that invoked the image of a conquering hero. Now, I know that might seem strange to us today. Lambs are meek and mild. Why would a lamb be a symbol of a warrior? But it was. Some of the great Old Testament figures, Samuel, David, Solomon, men who were considered some of the greatest leaders the people of God had ever known, they were all portrayed in Scripture using the imagery of a lamb. If David, who defeated all of his enemies and brought peace to the kingdom, was a lamb, if Solomon, who extended the bounds of the Holy Land as wide as they had ever been throughout history was a lamb, then the Lamb of God is the one who brings victory. In the years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a period of time called the Maccabean Revolt, when the people of God rose up against the occupying powers, and they won their independence, and they reconsecrated the temple. And the leader of that revolt, Judas Maccabeus, was a great warrior and a victor for the Jewish people. He was represented by a lamb. The Lamb of God is the one who wins the victory. Certainly that imagery would have been playing in the heads of the disciples who heard John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, like David, like Solomon, like Judas Maccabeus, then he would be someone to follow. He would be someone that you want to stay close to because he's the one who's going to win the victory for the people of God. What kind of victory? Well, they didn't know that yet. They couldn't know that yet. But we know now, we know now that it wasn't a victory over the Roman powers or over illegitimate leaders. The victory won by Jesus was the ultimate victory. Victory over evil, victory over Satan, over sin, over death. Jesus is the one who conquers all of these. To understand what this means, we need to go deeper into this image of the Lamb of God. Long before there was the Lamb as the conquering hero, there was the sacrificial Lamb. 
the sacrificial lamb. That's what John was pointing out, right? The lamb of God who takes away sin. He doesn't conquer by military victory or political influence. He conquers by removing sin. How does he take sin away? He washes it away by his sacrifice. He removes the stain of it by his blood. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is called the sacrifice of atonement. Atonement is a word that means being put back together. It means making up for that which broke the relationship so that the relationship is healed. The relationship in question is between God and us, that relationship broken by sin, the sacrifice of Jesus makes up for that sin so that we can be at one with him. Thousands of years before Jesus came, God established the sacrificial system and the law given to Moses. The Jerusalem temple was a place where atonement took place, the altar where sacrifices were to be made. Twice a day, every day, for hundreds of years, a lamb without blemish was sacrificed on the altar, its blood atoning for the sins of God's people. But the sins of God's people were never fully removed by those sacrifices. The sacrifice was not perfect. The atonement was not complete. They had to continue the sacrifices day after day, year after year. In reality, that sacrificial system set up by God in the law of Moses was pointing it was pointing toward what would one day be a perfect and complete sacrifice of atonement for sin. The perfect and complete sacrifice, the true and ultimate sacrifice that would atone for sin forever. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. Jesus is that complete and final atonement. Through the shedding of his blood, our sin is erased once and for all and for good. Now the Bible says over and over again, from beginning to end, that the punishment of sin is death. Those who sin deserve to die because they are not worthy of being with a holy and perfect God. That means that none of us here should be hoping to get what we deserve. You don't really want to get what you deserve, do you? The Bible is clear about what we actually deserve. We should be thankful beyond measure that God does not give us what we deserve. Instead, God loves us. Instead, God chooses to give us life. Instead, God wants a relationship with us. But there was a break in that relationship, and God had to do something about that. God had to mend that tear, atone for that break. The death which we deserve, the punishment that we earned by our sin, God took that upon himself on the cross. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this centuries before Jesus came. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. Like sheep we had gone away, each going its own way, but the Lord let fall on him all our crimes. He was oppressed and tormented, but did not open his mouth. Like a lamb, 
being brought to the slaughter. Like a ewe silent before its shearers, he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb being brought to the slaughter. He bore the punishment that made us whole. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our atonement. Jesus is the one whose sacrifice makes us right with God by washing our sin away. Our sin was a burden. Death was a curse. But Christ won the victory. Christ won the victory. Not only by erasing the stain of sin, but also setting us free from its power. You see, there's yet another layer of meaning to this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because long before there was the conquering Lamb, even before there was the sacrificial Lamb, before all of that, there was the Passover Lamb. The Passover Lamb. You remember the story of Exodus when the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. God sent Moses to free his people from bondage to Pharaoh. Pharaoh refused, as God knew he would, and God set a series of ten plagues upon Egypt, the tenth and final plague. The one that finally convinced Pharaoh to let God's people go was the plague of death. God sent the angel of death to strike down the firstborn son of each household. But the Hebrew people were told to kill a lamb and place its blood on the doorposts of their homes so that the angel of death would see the blood of the lamb and pass over that house. That's where the celebration of Passover comes from. It's a celebration of freedom. By the blood of the Passover lamb, God's people were set free. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the Passover lamb. In the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Last Supper is a Passover meal. But not so in John. In John's Gospel, the Last Supper takes place shortly before the Passover, and Jesus is crucified on the day of preparation. Crucified just at the same time that the lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover meal. Why does John make that shift in the timeline? Because he's highlighting the point that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. The one being bound so that others might be set free. By the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, we are set free from bondage to sin, just as the Hebrew people were freed from their bondage to Pharaoh. They were slaves to Pharaoh. We are slaves to sin. Apart from Christ, sin holds power over us. When I try to live as Lord of my own life, I put myself first, and that inevitably leads me away from God and into sin. Have you ever had a, a child beg you for something that you knew was bad for them? You didn't say no to be mean, did you? You said no to be loving. You said no not because you wanted to deny that child something that would make their life better, but because you wanted to protect that child from something that could bring calamity upon them or, or someone else. If one of the kids here said, this is boring, I'm gonna go play in the middle of Cox Road. Hopefully you would not say, sure, sweetie, go ahead, whatever makes you happy. You'd say, no, I love you too much to let you do that. Probably not the words you would use, but 
that's what you would mean, right? The problem for those of us who are a little bit removed from childhood, we don't have enough people telling us no. As we grow and we become more independent, we have more freedoms. And we have the freedom to do whatever we want, to gratify our selfish desires. You can spend your, all of your time having fun. You can spend all of your money on yourself. But that kind of gratification is not really freedom. That is what the Bible calls being bound to sin. When you live for yourself, you are bound to sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, sets us free from that bondage to sin. By accepting Jesus as your Lord rather than yourself, by following his commands rather than the demands of my own sinful nature, I'm released from that bondage to sin. I'm set free to live as God intended, to receive all the goodness that God has in store for me. The Bible says that Jesus takes away sin. He doesn't just wash away the stain of it or remove the punishment of it. He takes sin away and replaces it with the righteousness of God. He takes sin away and replaces it with the mind of Christ. He takes sin away and replaces it with the desires of the Holy Spirit. The disciples couldn't possibly have understood all of this that I'm talking about today when they heard John the Baptist proclaim, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What they did understand was that there was something special about Jesus, something about him that was worth getting to know. And getting to know him was going to take a while. They were going to need to spend some time with Jesus to really get to know him. Where are you staying, they asked him. Come and see, he answered. And they did. They followed. For three years, they followed, listening to everything he said, watching everything he did, learning from every example he gave. That's the thing about knowing Jesus. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. No matter how well we get to know him, there's always more to know. I've just told you a, a little bit about who Jesus is this morning based on one phrase from one verse of the Bible. I can't possibly tell you everything you need to know about Jesus in one day. I can't preach for that long, and I guarantee you don't want to listen to me that long. You can't just come to one faith on the lawn Sunday, and now you know Jesus. Even if you listen to me preach every Sunday all year long, there would still be more to know. We get to know Jesus through time and, and effort and study and engagement with other people. That's why we're encouraging everyone to join one of our small groups that start up in two weeks. Because it's through that time spent with community, studying together, talking together, praying together, doing life together, just as Jesus did life with his disciples for three years. That is how we get to know Jesus. Knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. That's the other part, making Jesus known. And we see that in this passage from John as well. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, that was a common expression. The Lamb who takes away sin, that was a familiar idea as well. But of the world? 
it's that of the world part that was new for the disciples. When God commanded the Hebrews to place the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts, that was for the Hebrews, for them alone. It was to protect them and to free them. It wasn't for anyone else. When God gave the sacrificial system of the temple, that was only for them too, to atone for the sins of the chosen people. The image of a conquering lamb, that was the image of a, a warrior who would save and protect the Jewish people battling against all the other nations. Then along comes Jesus, and not only is he all of that, but he is all of that for the world. For the world. Jesus came for everyone. It's very easy for us to sit inside our comfortable church building every week with our particular way of doing church, our customs and routines that work for us that make us happy. And sometimes it can be very easy for us to forget it's not all about us. Jesus came for the world. We are surrounded by a world full of people who don't yet know Jesus. That's why we're out here on the lawn today. That's why we're filling the truck this weekend, because the call has been placed upon us as a church, not just to know Jesus, but to make Jesus known, because Christ came for the world. You know, John the Baptist, he, he didn't really have to say anything when Jesus came walking by. He could have kept it all to himself. He could have felt good about the fact that he knew something no one else knew. He had this special relationship with Jesus that no one else had. He could have just held on to that and treasured that and felt great about himself. No, he couldn't. No, he couldn't. He, he couldn't do that. Because he knew that Jesus didn't come just for him. He knew that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. And so as soon as John saw him approaching, he pointed him out to everyone around and he said, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is the one who is the fulfillment of all of your deepest longings, the solution to all of your deepest fears, the answer to your every prayer. There he is. He is the one. John the Baptist didn't just know Jesus. He made Jesus known to others. And the disciples came to know Jesus. And they did the same. Listen to this from John 1, 40 to 42, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. John made Jesus known to Andrew. Andrew made Jesus known to Peter. And the next day Jesus called Philip and Philip in turn made Jesus known to Nathaniel. And on and on it goes. Each one invites the next. The next comes to get to know Jesus and they invite the next in turn. When that chain gets broken, when we stop telling people about Jesus, when we stop inviting people to church, when we stop bringing others into our small group, when it becomes about doing it for us, 
then we have stopped living the gospel. Knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Who do you know that doesn't yet know Jesus? And I don't mean that they've never heard of Jesus. I mean they need to get to know him better. And who among us doesn't need to get to know Jesus better? Again, it's why we do what we do. It's what makes us who we are as a church, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. God help us as we continue in that divine mission together.